and welcome to Can Queer, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. My name is Sebastian. You had an interview, or you were interviewed earlier this week. Normally, we do the interviewing. Yes. Not to sound pretentious, but yes. like we do interview a fair few people. I was interviewed, not in a way that'll be published anywhere. So it, it's not like, you know, another podcaster interviewed us. I, we were interviewed once by another podcast. Yeah, if anyone else wants to interview us, I'm happy to chat. I actually was interviewed for something unrelated. Yeah. Yeah, I'm yeah, I'm happy to tell things. So if you want to interview us, contact us at uh, Talk Can Queer on Facebook and Twitter. Actually, if you... I'll tell you about the interview that I had, and, and uh, I'm kind of indirectly promoting him, and, and if you are also a valid individual who could be interviewed, uh, give us your information. I'll pass you on. So there was a a master's student from the University of San Diego, and he's doing research on uh, very specifically gay men. I think he also is willing to take bisexual men who grew up in North America um, and specifically their relationship with the media. So there's all these claims that, like, you know, having role models makes it easier to come out and having positive representation makes it better to come out. Uh, One of the things that I mentioned is that because uh, I watch a lot of movies that were made before I was mm-hmm. born. 60s, 70s, TV and movies, gay people were not even mentioned. Even just acknowledging the existence of homosexuality was considered perverted and crass. The idea of them as a joke was a new thing in the 80s. Now, the 80s were pretty bad mm-hmm. when you watch a lot of 80s movies. It comes up a lot, and then there's... There is what uh, film critic Mike Slocasa calls a case of the not gays, where they have like two characters who are male friends, and then they have to have girlfriends so that you don't confuse them for a gay couple. And yeah. what, one of the more famous cases of that is Bill and Ted, in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bogus Journey, where they have the princesses, who have no function whatsoever in the plot, except to prove that they're not gay. And a lot of movies have the not gays. Um, but even just like seeing openly gay characters to me, was just, like, they exist, that's fine. Like, they didn't have to be positive role models, they didn't have to be anything other than just there and, I don't know, doing whatever. Um, the, the regional manager at one of the jobs that Roseanne had on her sitcom was gay, and it was just, he was too busy running the store to really talk about his personal life. He wasn't mm-hmm. in the closet, it was just none of her business. And that was an interesting shift on things. Um, but anyway... So he's, he's just looking to interview people, and, you know, if you are um, gay or bisexual and you grew up on the continent, uh, he would like to know uh, what your opinions are. And we had some talks afterwards. I don't want to contaminate um, what his preemptive, like, early conclusions are. Uh, but, yeah, no, it was interesting. Uh, I'm going to try to get him to come on the show when he's done to talk about his results, because I think that would be interesting. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I was like, who would have been my gay role model? And, you know, this queerest folk, which I think I watched at university. Mm. Um, UK or US? The UK version. I'm not a, I'm not a you know, Philistine. <laughs> um, um, don't get me wrong. When I went into first year uni... None of them were role model worthy. Though. No. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but one, at least well, the first series written by Russell T. Davis, yeah, yeah, yeah. who did a fantastic job. And also the point of the show is that these were all secretly good people who were encouraged to be horrible people by the scene. Because there was a few of them who were like, you could tell... Like the one guy who's obsessed with Doctor Who. Like he was a good guy, but the moment he was around his gay friends, he just turned into the same like 
idiot as the rest of them. And that was kind of the point of the series was, was like Russell T. Davies has shows with a point. And that was the, yeah. one of the points there. What are you looking up? I was just trying to jog my memory and see who I was thinking of. You know, I think... Stuart? I mean, a lot of people in Britain look at George Michael, Freddie Mercury, these mm. sort of queer icons in the 80s. I had, I was born after that. So for me, Stephen Fry played a role. Um, but there wasn't really anybody in television in terms of characters who were notably gay. It was, it reminds me a lot of, there was a TV show that went for quite a long time called Some Mothers Do Have Them. Okay. And uh, it, it's, it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to gay people. Okay. And it was based in a shop. And the, the floor manager is an effeminate gay man. Okay. And, and everyone else is very, quite gay. Mm -hmm. And it's all very much like, oh, bother. Oh, uh -huh. oh, Frank, you've done it again. Very, like, very camp. Very sort of wink, wink. Well, one of the shopkeepers in uh, Are You Being Served was very camp. So, I mean, like, they, I mean, the UK is not the same as America. It was not considered crass to even just acknowledge the existence of, of you know, differently sexual people. Um, it, it was still nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and it was like everybody knew. They never mentioned that they had boyfriends or anything like that. They just said that they had a busy weekend, and mm -hmm. knew what they were talking about, because you were an adult and you were not a dum-dum. It's amazing that I even saw it, because it was originally released in 1973, mm -hmm. and then, you know, replayed yeah. over and over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's the, the phrase some others do, am, do have them is... Uh, often referred to as somebody who was a bit of a fool, bit of a tool. I mean, there were, there were gay couples on the street and in EastEnders. You know what the one, you know what was my, my like, oh my God, almost like, not Queer Awakening, but played a role. Is it Dot? I want to say Misfits. Do you remember Misfits? Wait, Misfits is in like the, the crummy teenagers who get struck by lightning yes, and get Yes, that is... I will say, uh, one of the things that I loved about that show is because it was realistic. It was a bunch of teenagers who get superpowers, and instead of running around and save the day, they use their powers to try to get laid and try to get cheap drugs and try to, like, break into parties. And it's like, that's what an 18-year-old would do. Yeah. 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 Okay, so actually, it was Skins, mm -hmm. and they did an American version. Which was terrible. Which was terrible. Yeah, of course. And uh, nowhere near as good. It came out in 2007. Mm. Um, it had seven seasons, and I think it hit me at the right age. Mm. I was very much at the right age for uh, the cast. It was set in Bristol. Um, I mean, I watched Skins, yeah. and I was not the right age, but it was still pretty impactful. Absolutely. Well, I watched the first three seasons, because every two years they got a new cast. Yeah. And uh, the later casts were not as good. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it was. I think that would be it for me. It, it was nice seeing young queer representations, and of course, uh, John Barrowman on um, Torchwood and mm -hmm. Doctor Who. Mm -hmm. You know, people in, outside of the UK struggle to understand the national significance of of Doctor Who within British television and within British culture. I mean, some of it goes back. So they they. Um... Oh, what is his name? Graham Chapman from Monty Python incorporated Polari into mm. Monty Python. So Graham Chapman, at least in his life, was openly gay. 
Uh, in the media, it was more of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing, and they did bring in aspects from 1960s gay culture into the show and the movies. But it's one of those things that, like, if you don't speak Polari, if you don't know the, the queer subcultures of 1960s Britain, you're not even going to see it. Like, you're not even... It's going to be like, well, that was a weird turn of phrase, but it's Monty Python. It's always a weird turn of phrase. So the other one is um, Alan Carr and Graham Norton. Mm. They were often on the uh, panel show circuit, yep. the interview circuit. So there was there was some queer representation that wasn't just oh, wink, yeah. wink, nudge, nudge. Oh, yeah. It was a bit more on the nose. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and I think Viva Vendetta, I think, was one of the first movies I saw where it was a negative portrayal. Because, of course, Stephen Fry plays a character who's being hunted down for being gay. Yes. Um, anyway, but, but all of There's also yeah. the lesbian couple who wrote their story on a piece of toilet paper in the wall. Which is super cute. Yeah, which, yeah, which was very heartbreaking, for sure, yeah. Yeah. It is kind of interesting to see that people feel like there's just, like, there's all these, like, weird expectations that are almost true. Like, you know, expectations of what does it mean to be a man. For example, what does it mean to be a real woman? And I don't know anybody in my actual life who has, even people I don't like, just like co-workers or, you know, workplace adjacent colleagues in the past, I have never in my life seen anyone talking about being a man or being a woman the way they talk about it in the media. Mm. It's just, you, you are, and, you know, the only people who talk about it and think about it are weirdos. And it's the same thing with being gay, but it, it is this thing where, like, people talk about it a lot in the media, and it's like, oh, my God, I don't conform to that. Does that mean I'm broken? Does that mean I'm wrong? Should I conform? And if you grew up in that sweet spot where it's like, gays are present, but you don't really talk about what does it mean to be a gay, it's just like, you are one. Okay, that's cool. Next. Um, you didn't grow up with that pressure, and there's less self-loathing and less pressure to conform. I, I think, like, with all things, like... You know, like, having a positive representation of women, like, I really liked uh, Jessica Jones. Because it yes, was just, yeah. she owned a small business, and she was self-assured, and they never really went into, like, you know, deep feminist theory about what it means to be a whatever. It was just like, here's a self-assured, independent woman. Not a perfect woman. She had problems, and she mm -hmm. wasn't dealing with them in healthy ways. But she yeah, was yeah. kind of trying to deal with them, sort of. And Spoilers. it was... And it was just, you know, it was an interesting depiction of a woman as a three-dimensional character, and they didn't really have to dig down into feminist thought. And there's ways where she was a feminine and ways that she wasn't, and there's ways that she didn't conform, and she sometimes she cared, sometimes she didn't. Like, like a real three-dimensional human being. And I like that idea of, like, you know, show, don't tell. Mm -hmm. Like, don't discuss microaggressions. Just show, oh, that was crummy behavior, and, and call it a day. I think the early 20-teens was when being gay and coming out was in vogue. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I mentioned that because, like, Born This Way came out in 2011. Mm. And it was at every club. Mm. Everyone wanted to go to a gay club. Mm. Prides were springing up like wildflowers. <laughs> oh, yes. And it was, you know, sadly, a couple of years earlier, we had the It Gets Better movement, um, I think around 2010. Yeah. So we all sort of convalesced around that same time. Yeah. Um, but it really went from the, oh my God, there's decades and decades of oppression to the cool thing mm. is to be in a gay club with a drag queen. Yeah. Because back in 2011, that was the first couple of seasons of RuPaul's Drag Race. We weren't inundated with it like we are now. Yeah. Um, and it was just very much in vogue. Um, 
I don't know. I, 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 I wonder what impact that generation's had. But I'm really curious about how Gen Alpha are going to deal with it. And I will get to that just after our show. This is uh, this song. This is Extraordinary Feel by the incredible Denim Blue featuring Lizzie Clark. And we will be back just after this.
welcome back to Cangri, home of Canada's queer media. My name is Luke Smith. And I'm Sebastian. Just before the break, we were talking about how LGBT culture in the broader universe mm. or in, in broader society has impacted development of different generations. Uh, we talked about things that impacted us. We didn't really touch on representation that you had because you're a little bit older than me. Mm. Um, I am a millennial. Well, there is. I mean, technically, I am too. I'm like the first millennial. Yeah. Like I was millennial before. The OG. Yeah. The yeah, OG. Yeah. Like I was born right at the end of '79, so I'm like three months short at the starting date. But I mean, really, I'm there. But anyway, it doesn't I know. Sometimes you say things, and I'm like, "Are you sure you're a millennial?" I'm like, mm. I, I, I didn't. I mean, <laughs> first of all, people forget Generation X exists. Yeah, my so, parents are Gen X. Yeah. So yeah. I mean. The number of times where, like, your partner has called me Boomer, and I'm like, you know there's, like, two generations in between. Yeah, there's, like, there's some <laughs> gaps there, yeah. But um, uh, something that definitely impacted both of us, prob- almost definitely more me than you, was uh, the, the impact that the HIV crisis had on dating, where, like, people were afraid to date, people were afraid to have sex. See, I didn't really have that because I was dating in the 20 20- early teens, so 2010. It tapered off. I mean, well, I, yeah, that is when I met you, isn't it? But yeah, so it, it 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 definitely tapered off, but there is still that, like, cultural fear that, like, you know, yeah. you, you yeah. learn in high school sex ed, like, don't have sex with anyone ever or your penis will fall off and then you'll yeah. get boils on your Don't face. get me wrong. When I first started dating, there was a... I remember being staunchly afraid yeah. of... All of it. And the year when I moved to Ottawa, which is the year uh, a few months before we met, there was a syphilis outbreak. Mm. Which, I mean, I'd like to say that again, an outbreak... Of the syphilis. Of of an STI uh, in a city that has a a reputation for being conservative. Uh, Yeah. Even though Ottawa has more people on, was it Ashley Madison than any other city in North America? Mm. So that's that tells you something. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it is interesting, the, the different effects. And what, what got me wondering was, I mentioned Gen Alpha just before the break. Mm. And they're the ones that come after Gen Z. Mm-hmm. So Gen Z is sort of, if you were born in the mid-90s up to about 2010 is Gen Z. Okay. And Gen Alpha are completely in the millennium. They're 2010 and, and above. Okay. So they would be as old as 12 now. Okay. And their entire, like, the biggest thing to ever happen to them is the pandemic. Yeah. And you're thinking about it, you know, your school years or my school years meant so much to me mm-hmm. in terms of falling in love with somebody to find out he is straight, falling in love with someone again to find out he is straight, mm-hmm. to falling in love with... Another person to find out he is straight, to have at least two women fall in love with me, to find out I am not straight. Um, you know, this is this is romance, it is hormones, it is school. And they are deserted right now. Mm-hmm. Or they are segregated and, and spaced out. It's hard to flirt and breathe each other's faces when you're social distancing. I must be an outlier because I can't even form attachments like that with somebody until I know he's at least gay or bi. Like, I've never fallen in love with a straight guy. Well, I, I for me, my friend Jacob Brown knows this. I adore Jacob Brown. 
And he and, and lucky for you, Jacob Brown is a common enough name. But if you look it up on Facebook, oh yeah, no, they're never going to find him. There's like a million Jacob Brown. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Jacob was fantastic. He was so laid back that I swear he was lying down half the time, and he is unbelievably chill mm. and just so relaxed. And whenever you're in the in his company, you also just high. He's a very calming person. And just great to be around, and I became a good friend of his. I have that effect on dogs. You do, I mean, not all dogs, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's uh, it was it was great, and I think I just I just fell for him because he's such an amazing guy, and we've been very good friends ever since. But where was I going with this? Yeah, no, you. I worry about this latest generation because they have lost not just a semester; mm. it's now years of this pandemic. I think more than that the fear that people have of other people like other mm. people can infect you like you have to keep a distance don't touch them don't hug them uh mask up don't uh, like kissing is just spitting in each other's mouth in slow motion and yeah yeah and yeah. they are told oh, tonsil tennis yeah and, and they're being told to wash their hands with alcohol after they even go into and they can't the even drink it it's very yeah. depressing so it's it's I think that's gonna have a bigger impact than the social isolation itself. Just the idea of like physical intimacy will probably be an issue for for this whole generation. And I think actually looking back on if you read records of what the fallout was of like, you know, the Spanish flu or the pox or the plague, uh, there was that. People had distance issues, like they had trust issues for quite some time after quite a few of these major diseases. So I mean you know, if history repeats itself, then yeah, they're they're going to be a. Uh, I mean, if you if you want to complain about the the risk of um, STIs or outbreaks of syphilis, this is going to be the generation to undo that. Unless they cope with it going the opposite direction and just have a big pile up. Well, we won't see the impacts of what this has had for another ten years. Yeah, for about a decade. You know, the oldest of this generation is twelve. Yeah. yeah. You know, we won't see them in decision-making positions in workplaces for another 10 years now. And I don't know what, it's really hard to see how workplaces would change when everything you've ever known has been through a Zoom call. Yeah. You know, how do you form attachments when you yell into the air yeah. to get an AI to turn the light on? Mm -hmm. You know, all of my nieces and nephews talk to the Alexas. Mm -hmm. Like, they, they are all native to smart devices um you yeah, know i hate those things. you do you yeah. you despise them but it i think it's really interesting and i i worry for this youngest generation i don't think that they will face the same kind of barriers and discrimination and persecution mm. you know we were going to talk about gay baiting and we, we still might get to it but I remember growing up in high school and being deathly afraid of being called gay and, you know, one time someone called me a batty boy, which is a very offensive Jamaican originating term for um, a gay person. Mm. And, um, yeah, and, you know, you live and you learn and you, you hide part of yourself. And these are things that as queer folks for the longest time is what we learn. I don't think they're necessarily going to have that yeah. in this generation. But I really worry about their ability to interact and engage with other queer mm -hmm. folks and form tactile relationships. And even beyond that, like as I kind of implied earlier, the idea of media telling them that there is a singular... And it's always like, 
like the the expectations of what does it mean to be a man or a woman it's always like these weird cartoonish like Archie and Veronica bizarro mm. Grease the musical kind of vision and we're starting to see that with like gays and lesbians and trans people where they're they're feeling pressured that in order to be a true you know fill in the blank here you must be like something that nobody actually wants to be except for like the three people on TikTok and I find that is also probably going to be an issue as people grow up and they're like ah hey, you know I I don't want to actually have you ever painted your nails the number of times where I've seen young young queer people paint their nails and I've seen men of all ages paint their nails um I hate it it feels like my nails are suffocating and the number of women I've spoken to who refuse to paint their nails for the same reason they're like it, it feels like it's you're 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 putting plastic dissolving into your nails and it's uncomfortable <laughs> and uh like I'll do it for a costume I've done it for Halloween more than once mm. and it came off two days later because it, it's uncomfortable and some people feel like you know it, in order to express their queerness they must paint their nails or they must apply makeup but like sometimes you have an allergy sometimes it's uncomfortable maybe you know sometimes it's just not your vibe maybe it's not your vibe maybe you have a tick where you rub your eye all the time and now you've got oh like, my god can you imagine getting nail polish in the eye well, or thinking, anywhere else really more like if you have oh. makeup on you have one raccoon eye and one fabulous eye which is also a luck, but yeah. I mean, if you're not David Bowie, it may not be for you. It's come round again. I think it's, <laughs> I think it's, it's circled back. Everyone's like the one half raccoon. Guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That looks good for me. You know, I understand. I think we are seeing painted nails, boys in skirts, yeah. where they're like, why the heck not? Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah, and it, that even carries through to a news story from this week, just to put at least some news into our news current affairs show uh, <laughs> it has been a very slow week um but that is that the canadian armed forces are now going to do non-gendered uniforms now i'm not going to go and say oh my god they're going to put all of the you know the 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 the, the you know machoist of the men in skirts yeah. and have them parade with that's not going to happen actually that already does happen the queen's guard wears quilts well, well, Celts. Yeah. I think essentially what the Canadian uh, Armed Services is saying is that we have meticulously detailed because it's the army. They yeah. meticulously detail yeah. these. I don't know seven different items of clothing. Mm -hmm. You may pick of these seven. I've actually planned this out in my brain already because I. Uh, all those studies that came out, uh, they were really big about 10 years ago, and then they sort of peaked on social media about six years ago, and then it tapered off. The idea of having a work uniform again. I mean, people used to have uniforms at work. Now it's considered oppressive if you don't let people wear whatever they want. But there are people who have their own work uniforms, and mostly it was women who were saying, like, they have 17 of the same white blouse and 20 of the same skirt, and they wear the exact same thing to work every day. And it's good for them mentally because when they're wearing the clothes, they're in work mode and they get yeah. home and they change out and now they're in home mode. And like these were not like fast food employees. These were like lawyers and accountants mm. and HR representatives. And it was just this idea of like wearing a uniform and that puts you in the mood. And I remember thinking like banks could probably benefit from that. And you would have like, I'm going to use TD because they have a very easy green, white and gray color scheme. So you have like, three different kinds of jumper, 
that you can wear under your jacket. And then you have two different kinds of blouse with like, you know, the pointed men's collar and the round women's blouse collar. And you can have a tapered jacket. You can have a straight cut jacket. You can have a, a, a straight cut pant. You can have a tailored pant. And it's basically like four kinds of pant, three kinds of blouse, four kinds of vest or sweater or whatever, five kinds of jacket. Color-coded so that no matter what yep. combination you take, they're going to look good together. I think Starbucks in, has the same rule. In the business color, and it does not matter if you're a man or a woman, it mm. just has to fit your body. Like, you yeah. can't wear, you know, gigantic baggy clothes that make you look like a slob, and you can't wear something that's way too tight and going to bust at the seams, because, I mean, that's unprofessional for other reasons. But, like, so long as it fits your body, anything from the catalog. Mm. Which also works out, because, like... Um, some men, their bodies fit women's cuts better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a lot of women's jeans are very kind to men. Any class. man with hips yeah. needs to discover women's clothing. Yeah, and then yeah, a lot yeah. of women... Sorry, needs to discover the cut the on women's yeah. clothing. <laughs> and a lot of women benefit from wearing men's clothes. And I was thinking, like, it'd be interesting if you had that. Like, bring back the uniform, but also don't make it rigid. Like, here's a catalog. Anything from the catalog is part of the uniform. Mm. And it sounds... Like, that's what the military is doing. Do you know what I'm going to do this year? I have never really recreationally worn a skirt or a dress. I'm quite by the book when it comes to menswear. But I love a good cloak. Mm -hmm. I love a shawl. Uh -huh. I, you know, I'm all about the wavy arm action. Yes. I am going to wear a sort of uh, hip-to-floor summery skirt dress thingy, like a full-length skirt. You've seen me in my summer sarong. You you rock a summer sarong. Yeah. Because I'm like, it's unbelievably comfortable. Yeah. And it's flowy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as you move, it flows around. Mm -hmm. I am very excited by that. I think that sounds dramatic. I was actually complimented some time ago. I had a, a, a co-worker who also happened to live in the same building as me. And she was she was a Sikh from Northern India. One day, I, I answered the door, and I was wearing my sarong. And her eyes jumped out of her head. And I was like... What? And she's like, you're wearing that correctly. Uh, by chance, you happen to have bought a men's sarong. And third of all, it looks hot on you. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> because she was a non-sexual, well, not non-sexual. She was just a very professional woman. And for her to be like, hubba hubba, mm. because I was wearing, like, a skirt for men. Yeah. That was well, unexpected. I want to wear a caftan. <laughs> you know, I know that um, what I think is unbelievably sharp looking mm. is in a lot of the Middle East, uh, Pakistan, you know, for example, they have a tunic that goes to about the knee. Mm. And I just think it looks so sharp. It looks very dramatic. Africa, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's practical desert wear. Exactly. Yeah. Practical wear. And that circles back to, I think, the army. They're yeah. not going to try putting G.I. Joes into skirts. But what they're going to say is, here are a range of cuts mm -hmm. and colors. Mm -hmm. You know your size. Mm -hmm. Match the two together a and move of, on from there. A lot of people don't know your size. No, I know, but I'm pretty certain <laughs> the army will get you with a tape measure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're going to figure it out. They'll like, figure it. Actually, the best benefit of this is um, it could correct the almost century-long mistake that is women's sizing. Mm. Like, what is a negative three? What is a 12? What the hell does that mean? Men's sizes, it's usually just, like, the size of your waist in inches, and that is your that's your pant size. Like, it's, oh, my God, women's, women's sizing is is a mystery. 
It's just, it's baffling. Men's shoes, the length of your foot in inches. Unless you're European, at which point it's the length of your foot in centimeters. It's really easy. Women's shoes are just nasty. That sizing. What the hell? But yeah, so yeah. The, I, I, on its face, when you first hear that they're going to put men and women in the same uniforms, well, I mean, yeah, it, it could also, you could also frame that as like, you know, they're denying women their womanhood by putting them in men's clothing. But really, if it's just like, there's a lot of clothes out there that are pretty neutral. Actually, mm-hmm. if you look at um, medieval transcripts, women and men, not only did they both wear dresses, but they wore the exact same cut of dress. And it was, the, you hike up the length by belting it. And the way that you belt it, the way that you fold it, the way that you pair it with things like a cloak or whatever, that would make it men's wear or women's wear. But fundamentally, like, oh, and then girding your loins. Women never girded their loins. And that's when you, like, take the back of the dress and you, like, pull it through and you tie it up so that you've got, like, because they didn't have underwear. You, oh, I see. If you pulled up your skirt, there would be your, your bits. So if you if you take the front and the back and cross them over and tie them, then you'd get, like, kind of a diaper-looking thing. Mm. That's what girding your loins is, basically taking your dress and, like, tying it so that you have an undercarriage. So that when you're farming, you don't get cow dung flung up onto your... I never knew that girding your loins came from It was that. a fashion term, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is... Yeah. That is something new. Um, I was actually just thinking earlier about um, the Navy military dress. Like, the formal one. The white ones? Oh, gosh. Get me a Navy man. <laughs> get me a seaman in a, in a white formal dress. Uh-huh. It is... It is, I mean, they just look so good. Mm. And then it reminded me of James Bond, because, like, in a few of the films, James Bond, the fictional character... White tux, black shirt. ...is a, yeah. a Navy commander. Oh. He is Commander Bond. Because uh, Ian Fleming, who was also a Navy commander, mm. um, wrote him as a British military personnel, because for the longest time, the intelligence services were aristocratic Navy uh, yeah. military personnel. Yeah. But yeah, great outfits. Anyway, all of this is to say Canada's going gender neutral, or rather they're just going, here are your options, choose from within. Gender non-rigid. Gender non-assigned, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm confident they In can make it work. In my I wore women's jeans for about five years, and nobody noticed, because they just, they're very, very complimenting to the, actually to the butt and to the front, because they don't add that extra little basket so that anything you've got in the front is really squeezed in there and it makes mm. things, you know, objects in the women's jeans are larger than they appear. I see. Yeah. 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 Okay. This is Valleys by Cés Lopez and we will be back just after this. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Cancri, home of Canada's Queer Media. My name is Nick Smith. And we had some pretty interesting news. Uh, apparently, Canada has promised to take in a significant number of female judges from Afghanistan. Okay. Um, because they will probably be shot by the Taliban. Because they know how to read. Because they know how to read. Yeah. I, I wish I were being sarcastic. But no, I mean, it's pretty accurate. Yeah. 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 Um, uh, so, the, yeah, the, it's about 200 in total, but that's including their families. Okay. Um, but, yeah, so the Canadian government has promised to take in uh, more of these judges. But the other reason why I'm mentioning it in a gay radio show is they have also promised to offer refuge to LGBT Afghans. Now, Canada has already resettled thousands of Afghan personnel or Afghan um, persons mm -hmm. who worked for the Canadian government whilst they were on mission in Afghanistan. Okay. Very reasonable. How quickly and effectively they did that, I'm mm -hmm. not going to touch on. How much that process was expedited by Biden's sudden pullout plan because of Trump's sudden pullout plan. I'm not going to comment too much more on that either. But what it did is it left everyone who has been living in a city under essentially Western social values mm. um, for the better part of a decade and a half, uh, suddenly finding themselves under an incredibly violent mm. uh, theocracy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it, it, they, there are gay people on lists being hunted, hunted down and shot. In Afghanistan. It is horrific. If you, I mean, whether or not you agree with the existence of this fella, but uh, if you're familiar with the story of Lord Miles, do you know this guy? No. Uh, he was a British tourist who went to Afghanistan when it all started, just to see what it was like to see the pullout. And it got really violent, and he realized he had to, he had to leave his charging cable for his iPhone at home and steal another one because his char charging cable was pink. And that was enough that he was afraid he was going to get mistaken for a gay man and killed. And he's just like some middle class, straight white guy. 
Um, but even he was like, they are on high alert here. He was afraid for his life because, um, well, I mean, British men were viewed as being soft and effeminate mm. in Afghanistan anyway. Uh, and then on top of that, he had pink charging cable, which is practical because it's... It's easy to find. It's high-vis, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not going to lie. Every time my roommate puts down her phone, I, I hide it. <laughs> um, and by hide it, that's between quotation marks. I just move it to somewhere else. You are constantly moving things. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's frustrating. Uh, Some place where she is likely to have left it, but she didn't this time. <laughs> you did that to me. You moved my phone once and it took me forever to find it. And I probably just moved it to like the armrest of the chair you normally You put it on top in. of the fridge. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, I did do that, didn't I? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the it, it's not a good scene in Afghanistan right now. And it they were under uh, sort of foreign, I want to say foreign rule, but foreign influence long enough that there are people like their, the, their economy was entirely run on international aid and the military industrial complex yeah. from the US and, and allied forces being there. Like there, there was little to no domestic economy. It, it's like they did the right thing the wrong way. Mm. And, uh, but there were people where they, they grew up only knowing that reality. Like if you were five, you probably have no memories before then. Well, so if you were five, you'd be 20 now. Yeah. You know what I mean? All of your formative years yeah. in 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 a Western, highly influenced area, yeah. Um, yeah. to then have the Taliban rolling in, yeah. I can see that being a shock to the system, yeah. you know? I mean... Anyway, so Canada has committed to bringing in about 40,000 Afghan refugees. Mm -hmm. Canada is also one of the only countries in the world that has effectively prioritized bringing in LGBT refugees. So Canada is very good at bringing in LGBT refugees mm. from refugee camps across Africa and the Middle East. And uh, we've spoken and wax poetic a lot of times about how Canada mobilized to help Chechens fleeing yeah. the Burj in Chechnya to also set up uh, in Canada. It's really interesting in that it is now what Canada is quite good at as a country in terms of its its refugee settlement infrastructure. Yes, and but there are complicated, uh, well, positive in their own way, uh, follow-up stories where a lot of the refugees come here, they experience one winter, and they say, do, do you mind if I go to another country? So, like, our, our greatest experience is accepting the refugees, not always... Not all of them <laughs> accepting our winters. I, yeah. I accept that. I, I yeah. But, like, this is the landing port for their escape plan, and then from here, they yeah. often move on to other... Absolutely. Other and I, I think that says a lot. But what I think it does is it says a lot about Western Europe and the United States mm. in that they aren't taking that step. You know, these LGBT Afghans, yeah. they're on lists. Yeah. It is a matter of time. Yeah before they are spotted. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a religious person, but I would encourage folks to, to pray for them. I think mm. it's it's a very dangerous position in an incredibly dangerous place to be. There's a lot of people at risk in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Just having ovaries puts you at risk in Afghanistan. Mm. Um, but there is uh, certainly exponential prejudice against uh, anyone perceived to be LGBT in yeah. Afghanistan, so yeah. And it is one of those situations, unfortunately, where perception is enough. Absolutely. We have been following the story of Titus Locade, 
Um, he is 22. He has be he has about 170,000 followers on uh, Instagram and about 350,000 followers on Twitter, including... Actually, I don't follow him. But apparently Jake does. Yeah, your partner. My yeah. partner is apparently a longtime fan of... I've uh, never heard Titus of Titus uh, Lowe. When you say we've been following, you're, you're referring to yourself and your partner because I only heard about him for the first time today and then your partner just started like rhyming off biographical information about him. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. This individual is a model mm. and the reason why he's in trouble is because he has an OnlyFans account. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to assume our listeners are aware of what the content is on OnlyFans. Um, a so lot of it's cooking shows, apparently. Uh, but that's not why he's in trouble. That's not what we're not going to muddy the water here. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so he is a beautiful man, yes. obviously, and uh, he was arrested for distributing obscene material on OnlyFans, mm -hmm. where people pay you for the pleasure of receiving obscene obtained material. Yes. Um, so yeah, it'll be really interesting. He could be facing many years in jail and, and significant fines. We didn't mention the fact that he lives in Singapore. He does live in Singapore, yeah, which has yeah. incredibly repressive laws when it comes to this. Yeah, when uh, when you and Jake were talking about this earlier, I was distracted by your dog. And then, because uh, you, you had switched stories, you were talking about Taiwan before. And I was like, that's not that bad in Taiwan. And then we ended up talking about the, the, the situation in Singapore, which is weird because Singapore is otherwise a fantastic country for diversity. Mm. Like they've got like, I think they've got eight official languages there. Well, yeah. apparently he was making about five figures a month just from OnlyFans. Yeah. So there's people who are subscribed each month to get a sense of his talents. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's that's. It'll be interesting because Do not I, edit that pause. I am. I am. That's staying in that. That was comedy um, <laughs> But yeah, it's. Uh, we'll see how it develops. I think. He has argued that it is his primary source of income. It is literally his job. Mm. And that, uh, you know, the law is the, the, the part that's in the wrong here. Mm. It's challenging because apparently he was told to stop, which he then just ignored and just kept going. Yeah. So there is that. Which reminds me of the other big gay story of the week, or one of the other big gay stories of the week, which is an Irish man took a bakery to court um, for refusing to bake a well-done-for-being-gay well cake okay. or Happy Pride cake or okay. gay cake. <laughs> it was a very obviously gay cake. The bakery said no. The thing is, though, he challenged it in Britain because he's okay. Northern Irish, and he challenged it under British law all the way to the British Supreme Court. Mm. And the British Supreme Court said, essentially, um, this when it comes to weighing the rights, this isn't, this isn't really discrimination for what they said. They didn't disagree with him being a gay man and yeah. weren't refusing him as a gay man. They were refusing to write the message in particular. That's what it was. But were then they he, just like not a cake shop, cake shop that writes on cakes. Like we don't have that service, sir. I think they did, and that oh, okay. was part of the confusion. But he then took it to the European European Court of Human Rights. And he's just been shot down by the European Court of Human Rights. And people are like, oh, my God, this is a big, major case. Mm. But when you read it, the European Court of Human Rights said he used British law. Yeah. So in all of his court process, if on day one he said this is against my European rights yeah. and had gone straight to Pasco to collect $200, okay. he would have been fine. But he's like, 
But they said he relied on British law through the entire process and not European law. So at this point, the question is whether or not the British law applies, and it does. So they threw it out. So, yeah, there's been a lot of European LGBT media up in arms about this case. And sadly, it's one of those things where when you read it, it's a it's a process issue. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a it's a documentation issue at this point. Well, you know, you and I over the years have had discussions about the gay cakes and gay cakes, weirdly enough, for like 20 years now has been an ongoing saga. And I don't know why it's always cake. It's never anything else. It's specifically cake. And are we picking on bakers? Is this a thing that we're doing? But anyway, um, the something that comes up often, if you're in a small town and there's one baker and they refuse you, that's a very different story from if you're in New York City where you go three doors down and there's another bakery right there. Um, so what does it mean to be denied a service in a city with... with thousands of service providers versus, you know, a small village where there is the one baker. Yeah, yeah. Um, And then, does that change anything? Like, could you force somebody in a small town? Then why not force somebody in a big city, even though Mm -hmm. you can just go two doors down? So it's, there's a lot of issues there, and, and something that I always think in the back of my mind is, like, never create a law or an expectation that you want your worst enemy to have access to. Yeah. So, like, could... Could somebody go to a bakery owned by a gay couple and sue them to write gay people don't belong in heaven on a cake? Could they do that based on the exact same thing? Mm. And they could say, well, you know, it says in the Bible. If the shoe was on the other foot. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Would I want this law to exist? And it's one of those things where there there is no right answer. There's just a least worst answer that you're comfortable living with. And in this case, it's just an issue of, like, if the European court is like, there is a process, you followed the process wrong, sorry, buddy. I think we forget why justice holds a weighing scale. Mm. And the reason why I mention this is because the role of of judges is to balance the facts of the case. You know what I mean? And... I bring this up because very often when we're talking about hate crimes or, you know, persecution of the LGBT community, Mm. they are very often having to weigh in one hand the impact and the persecution of the gay community Mm. and also religious freedom Mm -hmm. or, you know, the rights of the parent or whatever. So often there are competing rights and it is the role of the judges or the human rights tribunal or whoever it may be, to Mm -hmm. balance those things. That's exactly what they're hired to do. It is the skill set for which they they are trained, Mm -hmm. is to weigh facts of a case. It's Mm -hmm. literally their job. Um, So, you know, if if that's what the answer comes out with, I I don't usually question decisions of a court, and uh, I'm going to probably stick with it. (laughs) There is one judge in Taiwan, however, where I will commend his decision. Uh He has rocked the news in uh, Asia with Taiwan um, now allowing a husband of a child, a husband of a a father of a child. Mm -hmm. So father, you know, um, equals child from his loins. loins. (laughs) And then husband of father who is not loined to the, the child, not biological father of the child, 
Loined is a weird word. Um, anyway, so the husband of can now adopt in in Taiwan. And now in Canada, we've been able to do this for quite a while. But um, in Asia, this is a big deal. Put more simply, couples can adopt each other's biological that was such a bad way of doing it. That was <laughs> such a bad way of doing it. This is big news. It's a great. It's a great news in Taiwan. It's usually step one to same-sex couples being able to adopt, uh, to adopt, adopt. Yeah. Um, but definitely, uh, there is no universe where you know adopting your partner's biological child should be out. Yeah. You know, and unless it's something like, um, you know, you can be their their guardian but we will not acknowledge you as their parent because to us parent is a biological thing not a legal thing but you're definitely their guardian and be like think about signing parental waivers for going on school trips and you know your child slips and falls in the you know in the play area you know oh yeah yeah. yeah. what i'm saying is like if if a country decided to reserve the term mother and father Mm. for a specific status but they were like guardian but all other rights, yeah. Yeah, right. then I'd, I'd be like, you know what? I, I would rather you not, but I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. That's a very good compromise. And this is a, this is a you know, being able to adopt your partner's biological children is a very good first step to on, on the path to... Well, Taiwan is, has been leading the way when it comes uh, in Asia. And I did see that Tokyo is also looking yeah. at improving... Um, I think it's same-sex marriage, I think, is a conversation that's starting to have in Tokyo. That was uh, one of my New Year's predictions, that Japan is going to do something big this year. But with Tokyo being the largest prefecture in uh, Japan, really, where Tokyo goes, Japan follows. Yeah, Tokyo is, it's not really, it's a prefecture, but it's also a city. It's kind of neither, but it's kind of like London is not really a city. It's more Mm -hmm. of a, like, a small county, but not really, but it's... And D.C. and Canada's weird that Ottawa is an actual, just a normal municipality and not something special. It's not a district. It's not a... Ottawa should be a district. And it should be twinned with Gatineau. We'll get into that. All right. <laughs> um, in other news, Senegal has decided against their incredibly homophobic um, proposed law, which would go above and beyond the already illegality of being gay in uh, Senegal, mm. was defeated. So this is progress in that there wasn't regression. Yes. So that's great news in Senegal. Yes. Um, we are playing out with Gogosh by Tisa Rahim. A fantastic, nice, upbeat track to end the show. Mm-hmm. I have been Nick Smith. And I've been Sebastian. And thank you for listening. Don't